everybody has the potential uh, this, you know, we're all these different shapes and sizes, but you can improve if you put work into it. So a lot of times, you know, we see people do things. And if you go to the finish line of a marathon, you'll see it hundreds and hundreds of times. You can spot them coming down the finishing straight and tears are streaming down your, their face. And you know, that person is doing something that they didn't think they could do probably just a few weeks, months before. And that's why it's such an emotional finish line for them because they've done it. And we have so many examples of people, of ordinary people, apparently ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so as a result, it just shows us that extraordinary is in all of us. It just has to be kind of pulled out. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. So we are here with Greg McMillan uh, for the this episode of The Common Threads. Greg is a legend in the running world, going back many decades, um, really pioneering online coaching. He has coached, Greg, I'd love to hear the numbers, but thousands of from age group athletes and people running their first marathon all the way up to world champions and Olympians. He was the state champion at 17 in high school and then the national champion in uh, masters in, in trail running at 40. Um, so he, he's made running his life's work both personally and professionally and um, really excited to, to have you on, Greg. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And so I start with a really hard question. Um, and it's, uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> this morning for breakfast, I had a bagel because my wife has this special bagel place that on Wednesdays has fresh bagels. So I had a bagel with cream cheese, some sliced apples, uh, water, and a cup of tea. All right. Is that your typical go-to? Not necessarily. Uh, usually try not to have so much bread in the morning, but uh, if she gets the fresh bagels, I'm going to have one. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, so let's start with just your journey to running and, and sport. So as a kid, you know, where were you? What were you doing? Yeah, super active as a kid. I grew up in rural Tennessee on a farm, so we played outside all the time and to play with neighbors. Obviously, they weren't right next door, so you had to get there some way. And so it was usually on foot or on a bike. And so grew up very, very active and playing baseball and basketball. I really loved those sports. And in, in our elementary school, we also did a field day and you would compete in the different events like the long jump and the standing broad jump and the softball throw and the mile run. And so I would always win the mile run and you got to compete, represent your school at the county championship, which was a big deal to us. And of course, the high school coach, he just watches that and he says, well, that's going to be my distance person. That's my long jumper. That's my shot putter. So I got invited to participate on the track team quite early because I was successful when I was young. Uh, and really the switch flipped for me at about uh, 11th grade. 
I really fell in love with running at that time because I was both, I was playing basketball and running and I really fell in running, fell in love with running at that time. And it just became my passion. And I've, you know, that's been over 35 years now and still love talking about it, love helping people with their running, love trying to explore how do we get the most from ourselves. That's great. What well, talk about your farm? What was that? What what did that what, what type of farm? What did that look we like? We raised beef cattle, okay. uh, mostly for our own consumption and to raise money. So we would usually, you know, have one that we would uh, slaughter each year, and that would be our meat for the year, and the rest would be sold off to to pay the bills. My parents did have regular jobs, so it was more of a weekend farm. We didn't subsist just by farming, but we had horses and chickens and pigs and a garden and all the things that you might visualize when you think about uh, sort of a farm. But it was great for me because we were outside all the time and played a lot and uh, played sports a lot. And I think that set me up to be successful in sports once I started more organized sports. Yeah. So, so you realize you're fast at running, you're winning races as a kid, and then in high school, you really turn it up. And I've listened to past episodes with you and I, I've been really impressed just with like the, you know, the, you can tell that at an early age, you were, you were, your thirst for knowledge and information and studying the science was already kind of showing through. What were you, you know, the, talk about that, like the, the progression that you went through both as an athlete and what that turned into, you know, your journey into, into coaching. I think at that time, obviously books and magazines are all we had. And so I just devoured everything I could get my hands on. And of course, this is rural Tennessee. There's not Amazon. There's not Barnes <laughs> and Noble. So it's really not as easy to get your hands on these things. But I just devoured everything. I would read everything. I even had sort of my own Dewey Decimal System where I had a notebook that was talking about each article that was on a topic. I had it all arranged so I could go back to that magazine if there was an article on cross training or nutrition and have it cross reference so i really kind of just wanted to learn everything and it was very selfish at that point it was just how can i be better what does it take to be a better athlete i loved hearing stories of successful athletes i loved reading about the science of it i loved learning about the the non-running things that would help you like nutrition and mental training and cross training i loved all of that and so that just, I was just uh, sort of, you know, all in. It was just all that I thought about and wanted to do. And everything since then has sort of just been an evolution of that start of this really curiosity of this exploration of myself trying to be a better runner, trying to be the best I could. And then, of course, you know, you study exercise science in school and if you're studying exercise science, then people start asking you questions. You start providing them with a workout and maybe a training plan. And then suddenly they call you coach. So I didn't really go into it with the idea that I was going to become a running coach. It was more, I was really passionate about trying to help myself. And I was happy to share with others what I was learning through my own experience and through school. And I loved helping people because, you know, one of the things that's so great in our sport is that everybody experiences it the same way. The speed can be very, very different, but everybody runs the same course. They have sort of the same struggles. They have the highs, the lows. They have that hill at mile five that really kicks your butt. We have that sort of shared thing. 
And that's what I really enjoyed about the sport. And I, I like when working with other people is it doesn't matter if you're faster or slower than I am. We, we can kind of understand each other from the standpoint of we know what it's like to try to go up against that voice in your head that's trying to tell you to slow down and you want to run faster because you're going for this particular goal. Yeah. And why don't we spend a little bit of time on maybe like what you were reading, writing, kind of watching back then and the progression of that information, like where it, where it really has improved or where you think, you know, where you think it still has, um, a ways to go. I mean, I was, I was not a big runner as a kid, but I was similar. I had a similar obsession with reading all of the health and fitness and nutrition. I was just constantly reading it. Um, and it's been interesting to, to try to dig into like where things have progressed and where things haven't. And yeah, I mean, what where like, if you were going back to your, those first plans that you were writing, you know, just cause you loved it for your, for your friends, what have some of the big shifts been? Well, I think the concepts are, are still there. Obviously the previous hundred years of coaches and athletes experimenting have kind of taught us what works. But what we've learned more and more is how to tweak things for the individualness of each person. And so that's what I was not good at originally. And every coach goes through this. When you first become a coach, you're sort of a robot, right? You're just sort of taking something from somebody else or maybe what you've done and you're applying it to another person. But slowly over time, you start to feel more and more confident of how you can manipulate or massage the training to better fit that person. You become, you listen better, you watch better, you learn more about, okay, if I see this or have this experience, this works better than this other idea. And so that begins to help you become more and more of an artist in your work so that no matter who shows up and wants, wants your help, you're able to kind of tease out, you're able to better listen to, to figure out what, how you might manipulate the general training principles to fit that person better in their particular environment, not just their physical skills or their psychological skills, but their life schedule, their, their work stress, all of these uh, sort of outside of running things that can impact it. So I'd say my evolution, like a lot of coaches, was at first I was just applying other people's training to my athletes. And then slowly I began to evolve their training into you know, a sort of modified version that had my input or what I was learning from the athletes. And then slowly you just get more, more and more confident. And it was really interesting. So the first book that I ever read on running was Lydiard, Arthur Lydiard, very famous running coach, coach of the century, runner's world called him for the 20th century. And that was the first running book that I ever read. And that was in high school. And then I got to tour with him on his last tour of the US. And so we spent so much time together and I got to ask him all the questions that I wanted to ask from reading the books and whatever. And I also got to be at his side at these talks and we would give these talks and then people would come up and ask questions. And I would just sort of listen to him, give these answers. And then later we'd go back to the hotel room and I'd quiz him, you know, what were, why did you say that to that person? And I realized he was just better than I was at listening, at picking up the individual nature from the athlete. So I kind of learned from that, just this ability to be open to evolving sort of the set principles to really match the person. 
And that's what exercise science has given us. It's not necessarily told us how to train. It's told us how to modify the training that previous coaches and athletes have already found out works for each individual person. And that's what sort of I've built my philosophy around is, hey, let's have proven scientifically based training, but let's make it fit you so that you get the most from the training. You kind of avoid the injuries. You have fewer of those kind of bad workouts and runs, and you really have this nice motivation snowball because your training is going better and better and better. And then you can reach new levels of fitness. Yeah. Have you ever been told, I mean, one of the things coming from the the business side, you know, we had access to some exceptional leadership coaches and, and one of the common threads I've seen talking to exceptional coaches like yourself is how similar the way you coach a runner is to the way you coach someone in their career or in any part of their life. I mean, how much do you picture yourself almost as a, as a life coach, as much as a running coach, because getting person across the finish line at their potential, um, the mind is such a part of it. It really is. And running is a 24 seven, 365 sport. So you can't compartmentalize it so much. And everybody now, you know, we talk a lot about when you're running, you're training, when you're sleeping, you're training, when you're eating, you're training, when you're thinking, you're training. So it really is this encompassing lifestyle type sport. And as a result, you do have to take into consideration everything in their life. And as a coach, you do get really familiar with the highs and the lows and the challenges that they may face outside of just going for that run. And of course, that helps you as a coach because the better you can understand the athlete and their environment in which they're training, it allows you to mo modify and manipulate the training so that they get the most from it. They feel success. They are motivated and it helps them move toward, you know, keep on the path toward their goals. So I would say, you know, I have a, you know, a minor in psychology and I think that helps me a lot in trying to just help people through this idea of, I want to achieve something that right now is a little scary and maybe seems possibly a little unrealistic, but I'm committed to it. And I think you see that in business, you see it in life, you see it with raising kids, you, all of these things are, they, they are, they kind of mirror each other, don't they? It's the same sort of process of I'm here. I want to be there. There are obstacles along the way and how am I going to deal with that? What's the best strategy for me to achieve my goal? Yeah. And, and so f let's go into that. You know, we're now at the start of the year, people have, many people have big goals. Um, there haven't been a lot of events so people have had to invent their own. So people show up at McMillan running now and they, they join your program, your team. And, you know, you've been doing this for a few decades. Like what are the ways that, that you help people kind of find their, their why and, help them reach their goals? And, and what are the common things that you see that, that make people fall off? Well, I think there's two parts to it. And this is what most people that are involved in goal setting and motivation and all that. We know that the macro goal, the larger goal is the easy part. It's easy for a runner to say, I want to qualify for Boston. It's easy to say, I want to break two hours in the half marathon. It's easy for to set those goals. And a lot of people do that with their New Year's resolutions. The next layer, the micro goals, that's where the coaching comes in. 
And that is, okay, in order to do that, we have to establish some habits. We have to get rid of maybe some habits that you have, and we have to reestablish some new habits that are, have put you more in accord with what you need to do to achieve your goals. So a lot of the work that I do is less about those macros because those are kind of easy in our sport. It's usually time or place or something like that. And then it's like, okay, what do, what do we need to change on a daily and weekly basis to start giving you a better chance of succeeding? And almost every runner can name two or three or four things that they can improve on or a limitation that they've had in the past that we need to address. Maybe they have a hamstring issue that keeps popping up. Well, then our micro goal, it has to be managing the hamstring. Maybe we have to have mobility and strength sessions that are built into the plan. Maybe they have to pre-schedule therapy as opposed to reacting to once the hamstring gets grumpy. So a lot of what I'm doing with those athletes is trying to tease out, okay, can we set the goal, not the big goal? That's the easy part. But what's our goal for today? What's a win for today? What's a positive for today? And the same for the week. Because I know if we stack successful days and successful weeks together, we only need to do that for 8, 10, 12 weeks. And that person can really become a completely different runner. They can have a totally different fitness level. They can have a totally different mindset. They can have a totally different body as they go into what will lead toward their goal attempt. So I think for a lot of us that work with people that are goal driven, we're trying to sort of always be ramping it down to let's achieve these really small goals every day. And if that goal is eating a little bit better, or doing your prehab stuff or, or controlling yourself on a run or sometimes pushing yourself harder on a run, if we achieve those, that's our win. And the, the bigger goals will take care of themselves. Hmm. So do you have like an exercise that you go through with, you know, new members to help figure that out? It's a lot of, it's different for everybody. So a lot of it is built within the training system so that we're always, we're essentially teaching them how to coach themselves. We're teaching them how to recognize these faults, these limitations, these tripping points. So we're always talking about you know, what are the micro goals for the day? What's success for today? What went wrong? What is the situation that presented itself and what could you have done different? And we're trying to empower them to do what I would do if I'm sitting there with them in person. Cause the first thing I'm going to say is how are you feeling today? And based on that, I'm going to decide, are we going to do the training as is, or are we going to modify it? So a lot of it is just co continually to come back to that idea of which runner showed up today? I have a YouTube video, which runner showed up today? And it's talking about, you got to make those game day decisions because you're a living organism. You're not the same every day. You're not a robot. So the more that I can talk with them about these micro goals, about these daily goals, about these habits, I find that over time, it becomes second nature to people. And then they really start to see their training take off. So it's not a specific exercise as more it is just repetition of exposure. You know, I've I'm just thinking about like all of the different things that can happen in your, you know, you're stressed at work. Something happens with your kids, you get sick. Um, I love the idea of the micro goals and consistency and repetition. When somebody really gets, you know, I'm assuming right now we're 
hopefully getting, <laughs> there will be some bright side in, in 2021, we hope. And, but for people who are still struggling and who are in that phase where maybe they don't feel like they have a lot of real self-control or discipline, you know, getting people through those kind of more meta situations, where, where do you have people focus when they're kind of stuck in a big picture, you know, down cycle? Well, we'll, we'll usually default to discipline. I mean, one of the things that's really helpful about running is you have to be disciplined. You got to get out the door and there's sometimes you don't want to get out the door. So uh, a lot of times if I have somebody who's lost a lot of motivation, they don't have any races come up, they're sort of in that a real down period. We sort of go back to, okay, we don't want to stop running completely because we don't want to start over. Most of us have had to start over and we know it really stinks to have to kind of come back from zero. So even a minimal amount of running will help us maintain a base level of fitness. So we're not starting from scratch once the motivation kind of does come back. And the second is the way to do that is to just be disciplined. So let's set up something that's accomplishable. Can you run one day per week? Can you run two days per week? Can you run three days per day? Let's find a rhythm that will fit into your life and we can have success with it. So if you're normally running five days a week and you're just really not feeling feeling it, then don't feel pressured to run five days a week, but let's try to get in three because you know you're happier and more successful when you are getting your running in. So let's not abandon all hope. Let's kind of default back to that really determined person that's helped you in the past. And let's just make sure we're getting in this minimum amount. Usually that takes the pressure off somebody because a lot of people, particularly goal-driven people, are all or nothing. So it's like, well, if I can't do the training plan as is, I might as well not do anything. So we try to work to find that happy middle ground that can work for that person and then come up with creative outlets, whether it is, hey, why don't you sign up for a virtual race? Because then that gets you something on the calendar. Or, hey, why don't you get your kid on the bike? Because you want them to be more physically active. They, they're not in school. Maybe they're not able to play as much. Get them to ride the bike beside you. That gets you out the door and it's sort of an opportunity for you to achieve that goal for your child. So we're just always looking for opportunities. And that's one of the things I feel like coaches do a lot is we're looking for opportunities for positive. We're always trying to see what is the silver lining here? What is an opportunity for us to make some positive movement? And for people that are low on motivation, you have to just realize that's normal and we all go through, it's not, it's not a straight line in motivation. It really does sort of have a wavy line to it. So just trying to always uh, find something that can help you on that line. For runners, I think discipline is an easy way to do it. Even if it's like just lace up the shoes and go out. If it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you'll still feel better. Sometimes that kind of kickstarts their routine. Yeah. And, and how about, I'm sure you've, maybe you can share some of the stories, but seeing just remarkable stories of people who didn't see a lot of potential in themselves who, you know, made it to the Boston marathon or something even much, much bigger and, you know, found speed that they didn't think they ever had because maybe they had never been a runner um, or they had body image issues or something that holding them back, getting people to, reach their potential what does that journey look like when you have somebody come in who doesn't think they they can do it yeah it's i think it's what i really fell in love with with the sport was the idea that if i worked hard at it 
I could achieve these really high goals because it was, it was a pretty direct line in running. If you do work, you will get better. You don't have to be six foot nine to be a good runner. You, know, you don't have to be born. Everybody has the potential. Uh, this, you know, we're all these different shapes and sizes, but you can improve if you put work into it. So a lot of times, you know, we see people do things. And if you go to the finish line of a marathon, you'll see it hundreds and hundreds of times. You can spot them coming down the finishing straight and tears are streaming down your their face. And you know that person is doing something that they didn't think they could do probably just a few weeks, months before. And that's why it's such an emotional finish line for them because they've done it. And we have so many examples of people, of ordinary people, apparently ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so as a result, it just shows us that extraordinary is in all of us. It just has to be kind of pulled out. And for my world, running is the venue, the avenue that people are pulling out their best self. They're pulling out this sort of higher ability. They love that challenge and they love sort of the scariness of it, but they enjoy the thrill of working toward it. And then as they actually achieve these things, it is really emotional just because like all of us, when you achieve something that was really difficult, you had to work at it, there's a lot of satisfaction. There's a lot of internal reward in that aspect. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that running is so popular. Once people kind of get past the first month of like, wow, this really stinks, this hurts, I'm out of breath, I'm really tired. Once they fall in love with it, that's what they get. That's the real sort of gold in the system. It is this opportunity to be extraordinary, to be something beyond yourself that at times you can't quite picture it. Obviously, I've coached people in the Olympics. That's that's a really hard thing to do to go to the Olympics, to have that goal is easy to say, but to actually have it happen is very, very difficult. And so you see that person working toward, they've got to be better than they are today. They've got to continue to get better and better to achieve that goal. And it's the same process for all of us. It's the same if you're taking your first steps and it's the same if you're trying to finish your first race or qualify for Boston, it's all the same. And so for me as a coach, the speeds may be really different, but it's still the same process. It's can you be a better you and what do you need to do that? And how can you overcome the limitations that you've had in the past that may be holding you back and be open to these things that may really uh, provide an, uh, an avenue for that success? That's great. And on the mindset side, running, reaching your potential in anything is hard work. There's pain and suffering along the way. And you know, I even think about like kids growing up playing, playing sports and the difference in a kid's eyes when a coach, you know, connects with them as a person and like lights them up and they feel good when they run out onto the soccer field and watching that kid's game then compared to when a coach is yelling at them, (laughs) you know, and, but through our life, like that, finding that positive mindset, um, and also the belief in yourself to, to go through the, the struggle and grind to get through to the other side. Like how have your views on, you know, mindset now is, I feel like that's like a big progression in the last 
decade on the importance of it, um, both scientifically and kind of like proved out our intuition <laughs> that that was true. Um, but how, how have you viewed that both with your athletes and kind of with yourself over the, over your progression as a coach? Almost like any mental health thing that we've talked about, it's, it's now we talk about it. Whereas before it was just that athlete has it and this one doesn't. And we talked about the hard work of training, but we didn't talk about the mental state that allows that. So we didn't talk about the fact that, yes, yeah, some people have a certain personality that they are set up, that they're going to be hyper-disciplined. And then some people are not that way. So how do you work with each of those types of athletes so that they can still achieve their goals? So I do a ton. I think the mind, I mean, it's the real, it's the real frontier for success because it drives everything. If you're not motivated, you're not going to do the work. And if you can find out what motivates you and you can stoke that fire, if you can identify your mental limitations, because we all have, you know, our set issues. And so if you can identify those and then try to figure out the workaround for that, then you can avoid the pitfalls because every mental state has a pitfall, right? You can be hyper-disciplined, but that's a negative too, right? So if you have an injury that's coming on, you need to take a day off maybe instead of run, but your hyper-discipline will make you go out and run. So that's a negative of that hyper-discipline mentality. The reverse is true as well, right? Like you have this big goal and you're just not going out the door because you just don't feel like it. Well, that's not leading you in accord to your goals. So I think that mental side is super important. That's why I built my training system so that the training plans fit within a life schedule. They have a little bit of wiggle room. So, cause life always happens so they can kind of not be a failure even when life starts to happen. And then I also built it so that it builds motivation. The system is set up, it's designed for success. So I want you to have that success. I want you to feel like in the first week or two of the plan, you are that, you're getting that coaching feedback. You're getting that clap, that pat on the back, that you can do it. And that sets you up for this momentum of motivation. So the way I think training should be is it should always be set up for success. Not that it's easy, but just that it's an identifiable success and it should be a positive. With that, the person is usually motivated. And if you can kind of build that motivation through the training cycle, that's where that person starts to overcome some of their negative mental states and they really start to live more and more in an optimal mental state for them and their goals. And more and more, we're comfortable talking about that. We're comfortable saying, oh, my limitation is I'm, I'm lazy at this or I don't take the time to do that or I need to be more disciplined with my eating or I'm hyper I'm hyper disciplined or I'm too hard on myself or I have a fear of failure or these kinds of things. Now it's, we're way more open to saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a thing. And so we got to figure out how for you, we can do a workaround so that you can, and usually you don't even have to talk about it that much. You just have to set them up. So they start having success. And it's just like the kid that you were talking about. If you have a kid and they already have success, kind of like I did when I was young, I had that success. People pat you on the back. Your name's in the paper. You, you work harder. You want more of that. You sort of start building that external motivation. And then, of course, it moves to internal motivation, which is the end goal. And doing this all, you know, online, 
So you, I mean, now like there's online classes and coaching and Zoom and, you know, we're all tracking every step we take on some some device or um, tool or technology. You, know, you were at the front of the curve on the internet for coaching. So talk about what that's been like setting that up, you know, as a running coach and navigating, building that, building that kind of business online and and you know when you look at the landscape around you like one sidebar because i want to come back to the calculator um it's like the holy grail and like technology is artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. applying it to fitness and health right and it hasn't really happened you with your excel sheet that turned into an online calculator for calculating your speed created like a predictive tool 20 years ago that's that stood the test of time it's really interesting and not many people have done that so yeah where's tech go from here yeah it's going to be interesting as you try to automate the human body that's always been the challenge right is because uh, computers like things that are consistent and so as we get more computing power and more sort of machine learning, it seems that we're going to get better and better at helping people make those decisions, giving them sort of sort of external guide to help them make better decisions. The trouble is, you know, the human being and the data that we absorb and connect, it's very difficult for computers to do that yet. And so, you know, I could meet with a group of runners And I could pretty quickly tell the mood of the group and how people are feeling. And you see somebody and you know, oh, they're kind of down. They're not quite, or they got something else on their mind. You know, how's a computer going to know that? How is it going to tease that out? And so I think as we, we're going to get really good at using certain feedback, whether it be heart rate or pace or power or some other measure that way we're going to do those systems will be able to do a better and better job and making sure you're not doing the wrong training that you shouldn't be doing uh it it'll be interesting to see if it can take over for a human i hope it doesn't because obviously i'm a coach i I like working with people it would stink not to be able to do that but um the more you know my process has always been the external those are tools to always educate the runner about themselves. And so it was all kind of, it, that's just external feedback coming into you and you're, you're doing the learning and you're the only one that feels the training. You're the only one that knows everything going on in your life and how you're feeling. And so if I can teach you how to better listen and feel that, whether it's from external feedback or more internal, how you're feeling, then you should better be able to train yourself because that's what ultimately, you know, runners need to be able to do. They need to be able to make those game day within run decisions that the coach would make for them. And I I don't know how much computing power we're going to need on a wristwatch to be able to, you know, give them that information. Do you think watching, I guess, from the community, like the running community perspective and from, like the health of the athlete perspective that we're on the right track? Like is tech adding value right now? Yes and no. I think it can add value, 
because it's able to record things that we may not know, like sleep, for example, quality of sleep, we should say, you know, again, better and better at being able to do that or heart rate variability is something that, you know, you need a device to be able to look at, but it's really important for knowing if you're recovered or not. There's several of those things that, you know, the devices are, are really helping us better understand that athlete. The know of it is that the person has to learn themselves. It has to come from within. And if they get too dependent on the external with its limitations, they then will not be able to, to know themselves. It's only by knowing yourself that you'll be able to get the most from yourself because ultimately the battle is inside your own head, right? If you're running a race, it's, it's inside your own head that you're battling against that voice asking you to slow down. So I think that's one of the, the things I see in this transition period of technology is that some people can get lured into following the device even when it contradicts what they feel and that we need to make sure we do a better job with that. So for example, you can have a person that says, oh, I'm supposed to run this pace on this day for this run, but if they're not feeling good, then that's the wrong pace. But they say, well, it's, you know, the device is saying I'm supposed to run this pace. As a coach, I would say, hey, slow down. Your body's clearly saying you need more recovery. Let's take it easy today. Um, so I think it will be, you know, like everything, if there's pros and cons to the development, it'll continue to get better and better and better over time. It's really a lot about how do we use the data? We can collect so much data now. It's like, how do we use it and what's important to a runner and what's not? Because some people need to, need to monitor certain things cl more closely and others don't. And that'll be interesting to see if we can have a system to, to tease that out for them. Yeah. And just give us a little bit of the story for people who haven't heard on kind of the development of your, the running calculator. Yeah. So I was in, in graduate school, I was coaching a very wide range of runners. Some people that were much slower than I was, some people at my same speed, and then some people that were much faster than I was. And so if you, if you're coaching somebody that's kind of your same speed, all the paces make sense. But once you start working with somebody that's much faster or much slower, you're unsure if that pace makes sense. A good example is Elliot Kipchoge. He, you know, he runs four minutes and 35 seconds per mile is his marathon pace. Well, to the vast majority of us, that's an all out sprint. But to him, that's marathon pace. He can do that for two hours. So you have to sort of uh, figure out what pace is appropriate based on that athlete's capability. At that time, there were several rules of thumb. There were some charts. There were some uh, other processes that coaches were using to come up with what were the ideal training paces for different types of runs and how to predict performance. So you're going to run a 5K. How do we know what your time's going to be? Or you've run a 5K. What can you now run for a 10K or a half marathon? And I was sort of using a collection of these different tools, but none of them were sort of exactly what I wanted. And my graduate work was on predicting endurance performance. So I was studying all of this stuff as well. And I started to tease out, hmm, I think I've figured out a way to optimally prescribe training paces for any level of runner 
that will be in the correct physiological and psychological zone, no matter if they're faster than me or slower than me or the same speed. And then I also could predict their finish times in races. And so I sort of started creating this system. And as you said earlier, I just had an Excel document and I printed out hundreds and hundreds of worksheets. And so I would just use this binder. You came to me, you said, I run 24 minutes for the 5k. It's okay. This is your level. This is your paces. This is what we can run at other races. And then eventually uh, put it on the web uh, when that kind of became an opportunity. And uh, it's just sort of taken off as a, a tool that a lot of runners and coaches use to help get their athletes in the ballpark of the pacing they should use for running. It's interesting on, you know, in the tech world and you, you, you talk about like finding product market fit, like when <laughs> everything's coming in and, and your, your calculator like solved a problem for people. Right. And like people gravitated towards it. How many years ago did you introduce it? Was it around 2000 or before that? Yeah, I, I did it in graduate school, which was in the mid nineties. Um, and then put it on the web in the late nineties. Uh, crude, a very first crude version. <laughs> and then it's been, you know, kind of gotten nicer and nicer as the web has evolved, obviously, from the late 90s to now. And we're currently working on a new iteration, which is going to be even better. Yeah, that's great. The, so on the on that side of things, like, you're not just a coach, you're also an entrepreneur, you're running a business, you have this community of people you've built over over a couple decades. Like, how do you think about you know, your day and how have you managed that to play to your strengths? How have you been able to scale it in a way that allows you to still focus on coaching? Well, I don't know that I've done a great job at that. I mean, obviously I'm not a trained business person. My background is in exercise physiology and kinesiology. I think that my passion is why I started, you know, I put it on the web. It's been free on the web. It always calculator will always be free on the web. Um, and so I think I just got a little bit lucky with the timing that, as you said, it was something that other people had the same need that I did. And so it became popular and that got eyeballs on the website. And then that, of course, certain percentage of them would like to work with me. And then I've been able to sort of evolve the training and coaching product pro portfolio to better meet the needs of different people, but I don't know that I've fully optimized the opportunity, but then again, I was really doing it out of my own passion for helping people. And as long as, you know, I can live a comfortable life and help a lot of people, that was, that was good for me. That said, I do wake up in the middle of the night a lot of times going, Oh man, what can we do here? Well, how can we do that? I should have done that better. You know, you always, second guessing your decisions on things and the world is evolving very quickly on the web as you mentioned when i first started the website you know i was there's probably two or three of us that did remote coaching and these days everybody's a coach and there's lots of different avenues for coaches to you know build a site or have a social media presence or uh, do it in many many different ways so it's really evolved a lot since i started and you know, as, as long as I can continue to provide some value to coaches and runners, then I'm pretty happy. Do you have, um, both on the like exercise science and performance, nutrition, mindset side of things, 
and you know on the like more of the coaching business side of things do you have peers or you know people that you look to across industries or sports that you really respect you know i think you're always uh looking at success and finding people who kind of uh, sort of share your same passion or your same viewpoint and or your same situation and have been successful. So I, I'm pretty open to looking at what everybody's doing. And, and I recognize some things just are not a good fit for me. And people say, you know, everybody tells you how to run your business. So you should do this. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not me. That wouldn't really work for me. Again, just like an athlete, that's a thing that wouldn't really work for me. So what I've tried to do in this era of, you know, being overwhelmed with so many things you can do as a business owner is to try to come down to a core set of things that I feel like I can execute with my personality, my background and the things I want to do and, and kind of make that work, uh, but be open to seeing what other people are doing and, and learning from, it. I mean, if you're a coach, you should be as much about learning as you are about teaching. So I kind of do that as well. I think I've heard, you know, you worked on one of the big um, uh, newsletters or publications early on that was delivered over fax, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I I was, I, you know, it's, it struck me as how things come full circle. Like one of the biggest, I, I would say one of the most, you know, the, the nicest things that's happened on the internet in the last few years is like the reestablishment of good newsletters. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like it's almost gone because there's so much noise out there and yeah. people are so overwhelmed. We're going back to a modern version of what happened before. <laughs> I mean, even podcast to me, it's like replacing in many ways, it's a better version of radio and the new newsletters are, better version of the facts that you were doing, you know, 25 years ago, <laughs> um, or an evolved version. Better is not the right word, but you know what? I, um, easier, <laughs> easier. Yes. It's, um, you know, now that you, I mean, you've read the books, you've listened to the podcast, you've done all of this. So, you know, how do you get your information now? Well, I think you're true. Some today you have to parse out who the experts are, who the, the experts are that have done it in a way that you feel like is grounded and, you know, has the sort of base behind it, the found, the fundamentals behind it versus um, experts that maybe uh, don't have that foundation, but they're, they're just well-read or they've had success themselves. And then you parse out entertainment value or advertising click-throughs <laughs> value versus you know, what is, where are you getting your information? And maybe that's what it comes down to is where you're getting information. Cause you can get the same information in many, many places. Uh, and so you, you start to look at, okay, who's got the information that's being delivered in a way that I feel is grounded in the things that are important to me. And maybe that's what is happening is that as we have this, huge global expansion of experts, people start to say, well, where did that expert learn their stuff? And what is their background? And that's somebody that fits what I feel like gives you expertise and who doesn't. And so 
that I think has become the biggest challenge. And maybe that's why people are um, going back to being a little bit more, um, yeah, more selective quality control (laughs) of where they're getting their information or who's saying it or, or what's the next level of information from what people are saying is, is a fact, or this is the one way you have to do it. It's like, well, okay, tell me more about that. How did you get come to that conclusion? Right. I mean, you just articulated basically the exact reason why we built ProKit. The idea was to give experts in the community a storytelling platform and a curation tool to bring together the best content. Um, and but to your point, the the big challenge is finding, you know, find finding the the experts that are credible, but also not stifling the people who are the next person right? The you 25 years ago. Um, I think that's been one of the most powerful tools of the internet is it's given people a voice who didn't have it and given them a platform to become an expert. So it's, it's like, there's two sides of the, of the coin and it's a, I think, right. Yeah. I mean, there's like the Instagram celebrity (laughs) who has a lot of followers who, you know, I came from Instagram, but, um, you know, who, who might not have the real credibility, but they have a lot of followers. And then there's, um, I think there's a lot of true experts waiting in the wing who haven't been given a, a platform yet. Um, it's definitely, well, one we of the all things. go do the same thing. We all learn it. Right. right. So I see people all the time writing about things, you know, they're sort of breakthrough to them. And I'm like, yeah, I learned that same thing. And it was a breakthrough to me. That's really empowering empowering. So I look for the people that don't just do that, but then they want to go one step deeper. You yeah. know, it's, it's almost like in music where you have a blues guitarist or a rock and roll blues based rock and roll guitarist. And he wants to know where the influences were for his idols. And then he wants to know where the influences were for those people, the people that kind of dig deeper and deeper and deeper. I think those are the real experts and that they almost become a historian is they know this is where we are now. This is the potential for the future, but this is where we came from before. And that gives them a grounding as to how you got there, what the twists and the turns were. And so then you're not so um, one dimensional in saying, this is it. It's more like, this is where we are now. This is how we got here. And this is what I think can happen in the future. And we're always evolving. So I, I think having outlets where, you can learn more about experts and where they learned their stuff and who they, who their mentors were and what their education uh, exploration was, is really valuable. On that note, the, maybe we don't have to go through all of these, but on kind of past, present, future, things like nutrition, sleep, recovery, and longevity, you know, they're obviously top of mind for, for many people. And maybe if you could just give us a, a little bit of your cheat sheet guide on how you think about them. We could, you know, start with nutrition. Yeah, it's, uh, we're in a tough time because we live in a way that is not in accord with how we should live. (laughs) I think we can all agree that, you know, not getting very much sleep, being overstressed, not exercising enough and having poor quality food is, is not ideal. So it's really a big challenge for us these days to almost go back. I feel like simplicity in nutrition is really helpful 
in that, you know, if you started to eat like your great grandparents did, you're probably on the right track or maybe your great, great grandparents, since people are much younger now than when I used to start saying that. But I think if you, if you start to go back to more whole, to more natural, to more basic, um, that seems to always be when they do, you know, those studies of which diet around the world is the best or where are these blue zones where people are living longer and healthier and happier lives. They all seem to have this much more uh, basic nutrition outlook. And that is certainly very possible for us, but it gets more difficult when life gets busy and we don't have the time to kind of invest in our nutrition. So I think that's why you've seen this movement sort of back toward uh, eating more natural and trying to move away from processed foods as much as possible, because, you know, that's just a little bit more in accord with how our body evolved. The same thing can be said for a lot of those things uh, where we need to make sure that the way we're living doesn't get out of control. I think you hear that a lot for people. They feel out of control. And one of the things that's been interesting for me as a running coach with COVID is that while a lot of the races have gone away, we've seen some athletes that have blossomed during this time. In my online run team, it's the team I coach online through mcmillanrunning.com, we've had hundreds of personal bests set during this COVID period. And I think it's because while there are added stresses that came along with COVID, we removed some time stresses on some people because they didn't have to commute. They didn't have to spend that extra time that they normally did in preparing for their job, being at a job and coming home. They were able to do better prep because there wasn't a race right around the corner. So they actually trained better and were more prepared to do training that would help them for the race. They couldn't get together with their training groups and their friends as much for training. So they had to rely on themselves and they got more mentally tough at pushing themselves alone. All of those things kind of came together with some people getting more sleep. They're able to take better care of their body and their training is better and they're running better than ever. So for a lot of these things, I think it's about just trying to find that balance of what you can control to keep your life as simple as possible, as happy as possible, and as rewarding as possible. Those things seem to all go together with the people that have a long lasting life satisfaction. Uh, it's not being lazy. It's, it's you're still driven and you still do that, but you make sure you just kind of keep it under control. And I think all of us battle that from time to time, right? Where we get like, oh man, I really need a break. I'm, I'm burning the candle at both ends. And we kind of find, if you can find that middle ground, that sort of Zen, the waterway, that's a really great spot to live in. That's awesome. The, the, uh, I was thinking about many people, whether it's in sport or life can like pinpoint moments where they kind of got into that flow state where everything slowed down and the focus was in play and you're performing at your peak. And what do you think about, you know, have you seen on that, that note of kind of slowing things down, getting more simple of people who have, who can find that state in their life more often than not? Are there common threads there? Or is it basically what you just, what you just covered? 
Well, it's different for everybody as well, right? So if you're a high achieving person in a really high stress job, family work and all of that, then your simple life is going to look different than somebody who has a more low key life to start with, right? So you have to, you don't have to be a monk in other words to make this work. So what you're doing is you're trying to look at your situation and, and evaluate where you feel like you get a little bit out of control or out of you're not in accord with the ideal life that you want to lead. And then how can you control that and try to as often as possible, maintain it and understanding that there will be periods where it, it won't work, where you will be overstressed or you, you'll have those periods. You have to accept that that's just part of being a human. Nothing is exactly the same all the time. But if you can have an eye toward working toward it, so it, it somewhat comes down to your, your idea of success, right? So if you have that idea of success being that you want to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled, then uh, sometimes things that normally would pull you off that, uh, that line where you're sort of riding that, you're in the zone, you, you begin to say no to them or you begin to modify it. So you're able to maintain your, your sort of zone that you want to be in. And again, everybody's different. So you can't necessarily compare yourself to other people. You're in the Bay Area. You know, there's some people, they're just super driven. They're going to, that's their zone. <laughs> you know, they're happy there. That's their rewarding. For some of us, it's not. And so you've got to figure out what works for you. But to me, the main thing is that what we need to do in life is we need to be constantly evaluating what's your bliss, sort of that Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss idea. Like what is your most fulfilled thing? What, what gives you that joy in life? What makes your life happy and where, how can you live as much as possible in that zone? And you got to figure that out for yourself and you got to be honest with yourself about it. And then you got to try to make, again, those micro goals, those daily goals to try to make that happen. I do it all the time where I, I can feel myself getting, getting pulled offline <laughs> and I have to like, okay, Greg, we need to, we need to recognize that. We need to make some changes to try to get back in that zone you want to be in. Do you have, um, whether it's like journaling or some sort of like check-ins with yourself, or do you have things that help you catch when you're getting off, off track? Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, once you identify what your personality traits are that you want to be wary of, I think that's where you always look to that as like, oh, that's a red flag. Mm. I see that in myself or I, I had this behavior and that's not the behavior that I want. I'm getting pulled off or you feel it or you think about it when you're out for a run or you're exercising or whatever you're doing, or you have that time where maybe you sit down with your child and you're just having a conversation and that kind of pulls you back to like, oh yeah, this is important to me. I need to make sure we haven't done this enough. So any of those things, I, I think a lot of, you know, being a runner is being observant about your body and how you're responding to training and adapting and recovering from it. And the same could be said for life. You, you need to be really attentive to yourself because it's really easy to kind of lose yourself in the noise. But if you can kind of have a system, whatever it is for you, that allows you to kind of have that evaluation on an ongoing basis and, and a reminder that that's not the path I want to do because that's not the person I want to be. I need to stay in this particular zone. 
it's really different for every person and that's okay. You just got to figure out for yourself what it is and then try to have a commitment to um, staying on that path as much as you can and being a little bit kind to yourself when you get off that path that you just work on strategies to get back on it. Yeah, that's great. So we can close it out, but on, I guess, two quick questions. So kind of where running's going between road and trail and ultra and, you know, I see in certain segments of the endurance world, things are kind of moving away from competition and more towards community. You know, the gravel of cycling events where you just, you're kind of out for the ride. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Where do you see running going? Where's the progression? Uh, running did that as well. I yeah. feel like when the sort of charity marathon group movement started, uh, leukemia team and training and some of those uh, that I've been involved in, you know, that was all about finishing. It had nothing to do with time. It was just right. about getting across the finish line and that reward. And then, you know, there's competitive people that want to, you know, time themselves. So the one thing about the sport is I think there's room for everybody. I think everybody can find the zone that will work for them. From the COVID period, we we have a lot more runners now. A lot of people couldn't go to the gym. They they wanted to get out of the house and running and walking and run walking are a really accessible thing for them to do. And a lot of them have fallen in love with it. I think they're going to be surprised when the training groups come back and the running stores open up for their group runs and the running clubs start having their meetings and get togethers and social runs. I think they're going to be amazed at how the running world is acceptable to everyone. If you want to just get out there and enjoy it and not worry about time, that's perfect. If you want to see how fast you can go, we got opportunities for you there as well. So you can really kind of find what you want running always seems to match what the need is. So I think there will always be competitive races. I think there will be less competitive races. I think there'll be a lot more of the community component. There always has been strong community and that'll be the future for sure. Great. And, and then last question, what are you um, reading, watching, or listening to right now? Uh, I'm reading a lot of my next book because I'm trying to finish it. So, <laughs> That's I'm, a good. I'm read my that... own stuff at the moment. So I'm trying to get that done the uh, first part of this year for yeah. it to be out in the spring. So uh, that's kind of what my focus has been. But I'm I'm sort of always I'm always looking at like I like to look at what a lot of sprint coaches are doing. I like to look at a a lot of what professional coaches like um, football, basketball, sort of more team sports, what they're doing. I like to look at what some of the more therapy things people are doing in other sports like golf. They have a lot of real innovation that's going on in golf right now with different types of non golf training that's helping their golf. So there's all these sort of ideas that I feel like will bleed into running And so I'm just always so curious what's working for other people and how that may be applicable to runners. Great. Well, um, let's, uh, let's close it out. And and I really appreciate you joining and what an ambassador for the sport of running. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Greg. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the common threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David 
underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com. <laughs>